I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. Sam, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? <laughs> I am doing well. Grades well, are in. It Ooh. is. I'm not teaching this summer mm. because I've been assigned special duties, which <laughs> sounds way more impressive. Sounds like, a, like I'm guarding ambassadors or something. <laughs> right. but, but no, it's it's a it's a it's a fairly relaxed, um, fairly relaxed summer. So that's good. I have. I am on deck. Um, May begins our golf cart tours at work. Um, we offer two golf cart tours a day during the week so that folks who have um, accessibility issues can still get a garden tour and see everything. And so those start tomorrow officially because we're closed on Mondays. And um, I am on deck in case anybody purchases the 10 a.m. or 10.30, I forget, golf cart tour. So Nice. No one's purchased it yet because, you know, it's still cold and it's supposed to be rainy all day tomorrow. So um, I I don't anticipate having a golf cart tour. (laughs) I I went for a run today because Alexa told me it was 49 degrees. And I'm like, well, that's that sounds good. I'm out there. It's drizzling. It's oh, we didn't get any rain today. It was just like like a few drops here and there, just enough to make me think it was going to start pouring any minute and that I needed to run faster and I cannot (laughs) run faster. And and so it was um, first time running this year and it was um, it was cold. So I ran yesterday and it was my second time running for the for the season and I thought it was going to be cold, so I wore, like, long pants, and I had a, like, long sleeve shirt on, and halfway through the run, I heated up so much I had to, like, partially strip for (laughs) for the rest of the run. I had, of course, my tank top underneath the other thing, and I'm, like, running and trying to, like, remove layers, and a car is passing me. (laughs) I've I've done that. I just wore the long sleeve shirt over over a t-shirt. I run laps around the neighborhood, and I'm, okay, okay, I'm I'm trying to take this shirt off as I'm (laughs) nearing my house so i can throw it in the oh, driveway no i had to I, do like the old school like tie my sleeves around my waist business nice. so it was great nice. i felt like a 10 year old again <laughs> <laughs> so in this episode we are going to be talking about a murder 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 <laughs> most foul i know i almost said that <laughs> oh well see hey we're mentally wavelength yeah. right so this murder is it's nuts so let's just get started. In January of 1909 in Rattle Run, Michigan, a man made a horrific discovery in a small country church. Rattle Run was a small village southwest of Port Huron in southeastern Michigan. The story was first reported on January 7, 1909. The Detroit Free Press had the most extensive coverage, and much of our narrative is drawn from their reporting. The main headline painted a pretty grisly picture. Minister is slain in own church, body cremated in stove. The sub-headlines fleshed out the story a bit. J.H. Carmichael is murderer's victim, goes to arrange revival, is stabbed after furious battle, and then dismembered. Assailants unidentified as yet escape in cleric's rig. Crime disclosed when interior of church near Port Huron is found resembling slaughter pen with floor and pews bloodstained. The article went on to explain that on January 6th, so the day previous of 1909, John H. Carmichael, who had been the pastor of Columbus Methodist Church for two years, was murdered. There was, the paper reported, a furious battle during which the minister was killed, and then 
Not contented with the murder alone, the slayers of the minister dismembered the cleric's body and cast the pieces into one great stove there to be consumed by the intense heat of a hardwood fire. Investigators assumed that they had then stolen the minister's horse for their escape. The horse and carriage were found in nearby Pine River. The minister's coat and other personal belongings were still in the carriage. So even though there was the assumption that it was Reverend Carmichael whose parts were in the stove. The newspaper also reported that the authorities were hoping to positively identify the remains by using a jawbone that was recovered from the stove inside the church. Supposedly, the paper said, Mr. Carmichael had a very peculiar jaw, which was rather extended as well as having false teeth. While there were two wood stoves in the church, only one had remains in it. The other was merely splattered with blood. Mm. So, yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it resembled a slaughter pen. I know, a slaughter pen. So the man who first discovered the crime scene was named Myron Brown, and he lived next door to the church and noticed blood in the snow outside the church. And some accounts list Brown as the church caretaker, but it was inconsistent how he was described. Here's the description. Blood covered the floors, the pews, even the pulpit. One window was broken and a chair was smashed. Red-stained undergarments, which were later identified as having belonged to Reverend Mr. Carmichael, were torn to shreds and scattered about the structure. Brown fetched another man who lived nearby, and they investigated more thoroughly, finding more bloodied clothes and a blood-stained dagger. A trail of blood led to the stove, and inside were a variety of badly burned bones. More recognizable was, in the reporter's words, the central part of the body, basically (laughs) a torso right there. It's almost unimaginably nasty. Yeah, that's something, I mean, you don't expect to (laughs) come upon in in your church. (laughs) Right. It's like, oh, here's here's a torso. My my mom was a church secretary when I was a kid, and so I I hung around at church a lot. And um, (laughs) I think I found a dead mouse once, but that that was Mm. about it. Yeah. So also in the stove were a hatchet and another dagger. And the two men called the sheriff. Why wouldn't you call the sheriff earlier? That I mean, if I find blood somewhere, there's not supposed like that that much blood. Just call the authorities. Right. And and you're pretty certain you're not going to be rendering any first aid to the torso. So after finding someone to identify the clothes as Carmichael's, the authorities determined that he was the victim. The problem was a motive. There was money left in the church, so robbery didn't seem to be a factor. The paper talked to Mrs. Carmichael, who'd been worried when her husband hadn't returned from Columbus, which is the even smaller village near Mm -hmm. Rattle Run. So many small villages. And she feared the worst. So she was wondering where her husband was. Then she starts hearing people talking that someone had been killed at the church. So she's like putting Mm -hmm. two and two together and getting kind of worried. Now, the authorities believed that there were two men who had attacked Carmichael based on a witness's statement that he had seen two men driving the minister's carriage afterward. They did reveal that there was a suspect, a carpenter, who was being searched for. Why the carpenter? The paper doesn't explain. The sheriff, when asked, says the evidence is circumstantial, with nothing solid to connect him to the crime, but that he was certain they had the right man under suspicion. (laughs) Basically, someone had asked the carpenter if he wanted a ride and said he acted kind of strange. That's it. Calling this circumstantial evidence is is kind of overstating the case. Yeah, that wouldn't bit. that wouldn't go on Law and Order. No, I, I was going to say the same thing <laughs> about Law and Order. Yeah, um, body parts strewn around a church. You're under pressure to find a suspect, right? Yeah, and small town, and 
I mean, this isn't like happening in, you know, downtown Detroit or something like that in in the early 1900s. Local prosecutors declared it to be the most heinous murder they'd ever heard of, which makes sense, really. This is if you've heard of a worse murder than this, that's bad. You know, this is I mean, even like in in White Cloud. This would be the worst murder. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, this is this... far worse than than the Dungeon Swamp murder. <laughs> that, that's that's a simple domestic dispute. This is torso. This is a very long newspaper article, and there's a degree of sensationalism to the reporting. Lots of descriptions of the bloody scene inside the church. Also, a section that reads in all caps: "Part of abdomen found," <laughs> which I love. The article was accompanied by a diagram of the church with a dotted line tracing the trail of blood, uh, which I'm pretty sure we're going to throw up on social media for you to take a look at because Mm -hmm. that is outstanding. This statement from the prosecutor sums up the sense of horror they felt. In my opinion, this crime was committed by some pervert with an inordinate craving for blood. I do not believe that any sane man could be guilty of so contemptible and shocking a deed. So the investigation continues and a lot can happen in 24 hours because on january 8th the free press had another article out and the mystery only deepened as the paper put it yesterday it was thought that reverend john h carmichael was the victim this morning it was held that the pastor was the perpetrator tonight the startling theory is advanced that no person has been slain Tomorrow, an investigation will be started along this line, which it is believed tonight will lead to the correct solution of what is now the greatest mystery in the annals of St. Clair County crime. There were suspicions that it was physically impossible for the wood stove to generate the heat necessary to burn the body. There was suspicion that the blood in the church might not even be human. Could there have been a grave robbing to supply body parts to make it look like a murder scene? Police, the newspaper reported, were utterly baffled by the complete lack of motive for murder on the part of either Carmichael or the carpenter under suspicion, now identified as Aaron, sometimes Amos, Gideon Browning, known as Gid. So most of the things that I find later, he's referred to as Amos, but Aaron said that he, you saw something where he was referred to as Aaron, right? I think it was just this article, probably because okay. they, they didn't have, they're still gathering facts sure. and everything, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. The new theory, based on the fact that Carmichael's wife saw him leave the house with a suitcase with practically all his wardrobe that had not yet been found, was that he might be trying to pull off some kind of life insurance scam. You know, maybe he killed an animal, set a stage, and disappeared with all of his belongings, apparently. I've been, I've been working on ideas to fake my death like since I was in college. It just sounds like something I'm going to need to do at some point. <laughs> I always so. wanted to just, you know, run away to a cabin somewhere and my, like, <laughs> no one knows. That's just where Sam, she's just gone. <laughs> it, it's, it's a nice idea sometimes. I, it is. It is. Yeah. The papers mention theories like this, but don't attribute them to any person in particular. And frankly, it makes for a pretty confusing read as we're trying to piece (laughs) together the story. (laughs) Um, The St. Clair County Sheriff Wagoncell, meanwhile, had become convinced that Gideon Browning was the victim based on hair found at the scene and a tie pin found in the wood stove that friends of Browning identified. Browning was 50 and described as unsophisticated with a reputation as a roustabout. To the sheriff, it was becoming clear that Reverend Carmichael was far from a victim in this bizarre event. 
So two police lieutenants from Detroit arrived to assist with the investigation and visited Carmichael's home, and they spoke with his adult daughter. She defended her father, talking up his good qualities, and explained that even though nearly all of her father's clothes were gone, it was not unusual for him to be away from the house for several days at a time. Okay. (laughs) I should note, because that does sound really suspicious, there was another article that explained that he was a pastor at like three or four churches in different different towns. Like a circuit rider. So, but really all your clothes, nearly all your clothes. Yeah. Yeah. She noted that he would never have anything to do with someone like Browning. That man is worthless, she said before breaking into tears. Police had few leads as to Carmichael's whereabouts, but were concerned that he might have crossed the St. Clair River into Canada and officials in Ontario were on the lookout for him. As authorities traced both men's movements over the days leading up to the incident, it appears there was a connection between them. Carmichael would visit Browning at his home, and Browning told his 11-year-old son that he had gotten a good job at the church that required him to do nothing but put on a suit and smoke cigars. Totally sounds like a job that I've heard of at churches. Yeah, that's... (laughs) Wow. Especially one that, like... Because if you're, like, a church that can only afford, like, the circuit rider type, that means you don't have a lot of money. No, you're you're not paying a guy to stand around and smoke cigars. No, no. There's quite a bit of rumorish background on Browning, including the fact that his wife left him for an Italian, which seems a bit specific and unnecessary to the newspaper story. <laughs> I, just, I just thought it was I, – I threw that in there in here yeah. the outline because I thought it was just weird. Well, and at this time too, like Italians were kind of – like being a new immigrant yeah. like group, it would have been like, oh, she left yeah. him for an Italian. So the January 9th Free Press reported that a dentist had recognized the false teeth in the remains and identified them as belonging to Browning. And the police were at this point fully convinced that Carmichael was the murderer and offered a $500 reward for his arrest. More details about the crime were coming out, including the suspicion that the body had not been entirely burned and that at least the legs and feet of the victim were carried off by the blood-maddened perpetrator. Ooh, that's a good... Blood-maddened perpetrator. It's glorious. There was also some evidence that parts of the body had been dissolved with acid following the killing. And the police interviewed Mrs. Carmichael, and she had little to add, but they made it clear that she wasn't under any suspicion. Now, one of the most striking things about this January 9th issue of the paper was the headline, which asked in huge letters, was victim blood sacrifice to God? (laughs) This, (laughs) right? (laughs) This angle on the case was developed by unnamed theorists in, quote, the absence of plausible motives for the case. So they are just grasping at straws all over the place. Gideon Browning, according to his sister-in-law, had found religion, had quit drinking and swearing, and had become something of a spiritual protege of Reverend Carmichael. Because of this, the theorists said that Browning may have been the victim of a blood sacrifice. They offer no actual reason for this speculation. But they do link it to the case of a man named Albert Stemmelin, which sent me down the rabbit hole of looking up <laughs> Albert Stemmelin. So in August of 1907, Stemmelin threw his two-year-old daughter Helen off the Belle Isle Bridge in Detroit to her death. In his confession to police, Stemmelin explained that he was in a kind of hypnotic trance, fixated on his sins, particularly his lack of charity, and that a sacrifice was necessary to atone for this. And he decided that out of all of his children, Helen was the most perfect and his favorite and had not yet 
exhibited the lack of charity that he and he believed his other children possessed. Helen would be the perfect sacrifice. It is a horribly awful story. And you get to a point where you just like, I'm, I know enough that I don't have to finish reading this story. Well, and like I can see how like since this was just I mean, not even two full year, like a right. year and a half earlier, right. like something like that had just happened. So these reporters in Detroit were probably like, Oh, whoa, is this, this kind of sounds yeah. yeah. And I, I do just want to say that the, the whole um as you were reading it, the the blood sacrifice angle had be a perfect criminal minds case. It would be. <laughs> It would be. I mean, yeah. I only watched the first few seasons because Mandy Patinkin was in it, but um, it would have. I know. Uh, it would have. Uh, perfect. Um, yeah. <laughs> per- perfect Criminal Minds episode. I, I can't get over the fact that the guy from Dharma and Greg is on it. I don't know. It, it sort of takes me out. Of, I hated that show, and that sort of just takes me oh, out of the whole thing. Oh. I just, I really like Mandy Patinkin. Um, you should follow him on TikTok. You don't have TikTok. You should follow I, I him on I don't have TikTok. No, it's, he's very funny on TikTok. Actually, I have TikTok. I have no idea. I've never opened it on my phone. Oh. I have it on my phone, so when you send me links to TikTok, they open <laughs> on my phone. That's the only reason I have true TikTok friendship. On my true phone. friendship. That's right. When you're installing apps because a friend sends you stuff, that's that's good. That's good. So other investigators and journalists were checking out other potential explanations for what might have possessed Carmichael to murder Browning, and there was no robbery. Still, they couldn't find any evidence of robbery. They could find nothing to indicate Carmichael was seeking revenge for anything. The most likely theory, three days into the affair, was insanity, which is just a pretty handy catch-all for we have no idea Mm -hmm. why this was done. Somebody must be insane. Tracing Carmichael's movements before the murder revealed a strange encounter. He visited the Jones family, who lived a few miles from the church, and talked to the family's three boys for a while, telling them they needed to start attending church. Further, he told them that when they heard him speak, they were to consider his voice to be the voice of God. One of the boys noticed a suitcase and also reported that the cargo area of the buggy was packed full, supporting the idea that Carmichael was planning on leaving town soon. So Carmichael's whereabouts were, of course, the subject of constant speculation after the murder. As we said, Canadian officials were checking train stations and other ports of entry. His description had been wired to police departments and newspapers far and wide. Maybe he was in Toronto. Perhaps he had gone to Detroit. And in fact, some thought that Detroit was where he went and reported a man matching his description to the police. It wasn't Carmichael, but from the newspaper reports, the public's vigilance was high. In a January 9th article that ran in the Chicago Tribune, we get a good picture of the search for Carmichael and the search for a motive. The headline reads, Identify victim of church crime. Michigan dentist says teeth found in church were those of Browning. And as we mentioned, it reports that the St. Clair County supervisor had offered a $500 reward for the arrest of Carmichael. They sent out the following description of him. Both legs have been broken and he walks with a decided limp. Both his feet turn out noticeably, one at an angle of 45 degrees. He has a scar on his upper lip and another on the side of his nose. His eyes are light blue or gray. There is another scar on one of his legs just below the knee. When he disappeared, he wore a brownish beard closely cropped at the sides. The beard and his hair, also brown, showing a little gray, recently had been trimmed. Rumors that Carmichael had been seen crossing the St. Clair River into Canada, but that had not been confirmed. Carmichael's wife and daughter, who had been talked to by the reporters and by the, the police, were now interviewed by the prosecutor. And he believed they knew nothing about the murder, but were interested in the fact that Mrs. Carmichael shared 
that her husband's sister was in an insane asylum in West Virginia. They thought this could shed some light on the horrible features of the crime, as they phrased it. She also noted that he had been moody and broody over something the night before he disappeared. The article also reported that the day before the murder, the minister had been at the post office and seemed upset. He picked up a letter and left without opening it. It's wondered if this was in connection to his familiarity with Browning, which people in the town had been noting in the weeks leading up to the murder. The article also contains a story out of Detroit, which describes two novel manuscripts which Carmichael had authored. The second had been finished the day before the murder and sent to Reverend Charles W. Baldwin in Detroit. A letter accompanying the manuscript said it was a sequel to his first, which was sent to his brother, also a clergyman. Upon looking at the manuscripts, they were described as showing a morbid frame of mind. The article ends with another piece, originally from Nebraska, stating that Carmichael had served as the minister in a Methodist church there in 1895 and 1896 and had been criticized near the end of his pastorate for alleged indiscretions and his dismissal following the bringing of charges against him. He does not seem like a stable Mabel. No, <laughs> not at all. Um, and that article went into more detail about what was in the novels as well. Um, and it included some passages and stuff. It was sort of extra stuff that would muddy up the telling of this story. But it's definitely, you know, maybe maybe somehow we can include it in some social medias or yeah. or, or yeah. write something up um, because it was just odd. You know, he had like, you know, men who were kind of, you know, had been injured and broken down. And um, yeah. Strange stuff. Very strange. Well, well, when we come back, we're going to solve this mystery for you. So (laughs) you're welcome. So if you want to follow along with us on social media, you can follow us at Great Lakes Lore on Twitter and Instagram or the Great Lakes Lore podcast on Facebook. Our website is greatlakeslore.com, or you can email us at greatlakeslorepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we also have a Patreon. It's for Chizo Media. So if you search Chizo Media or go to patreon.com slash Chizo Media, um, you'll be able to find us there. It's a Patreon for both Great Lakes Lore and Aaron's other podcast, The Saucer Life. And we um, put early releases of the shows. We have research blogs and also try to put up some fun videos, uh, bonus episodes each month, all that kind of stuff. So, so there's more more content if you are a big Chizo Media fan. So you can check us out there if you would like to support us. Absolutely. And one of the things, one of the sorts of things you'll find on the Patreon is something that we just did that we're going to be giving to everybody because we talked about it in our first episode and we're excited about what we were <laughs> able to do. And this this happened since our last, uh, since our last episode. So um, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, so we decided to go back to White. Well, not back to White Cloud. Um, well, Aaron went. went I went to back Cloud. to White Cloud. I go pretty regularly to visit my family. Um, but we went to White Cloud and um, dove into some old local newspapers about the Dungeon Swamp mystery. Because when we were doing research for the episode, we found a, you know, lot that had been printed in larger city newspapers, newspapers, you know, from other places in Michigan and even outside of Michigan. But we didn't have a local newspaper. The White Cloud newspaper hadn't been digitized. And so we got to go and flip through a whole bunch of microfilm. (laughs) A lot of microfilm. 
a lot of microphone, but we found some great stuff. We uh, we took some video. We went to the edge of the actual swamp, and we will be working on a little mini bonus episode, sort of updating you on our research. And uh, it's for everybody. It's not just for the Patreon. That one's going to be for everybody. Yeah. Since you all heard the episode, we wanted to make sure that you all got the update. There was it was definitely worth it, and I think we're even we're we're toying with the idea of going back again because we still have a few more questions, and the library is not open very long on a Saturday, so we, no, we didn't we, have we, time to do all we wanted. We closed the place down. It was did. it was pretty wild. Yeah, while there, I think there were what two or three other people who showed up. Yes, on this Saturday. I, I, I think it so. was a beautiful day, though. It, so. it was gorgeous. Um, yeah. I did keep a close eye on the librarian. I don't know why. I just he was very at, nervous about. I was the very vigil, hyper vigilant about the librarians. <laughs> I think it's because I'm pretty sure we put the stuff in the microfilm reader the wrong way, and I was worried we were going to break something, and I wanted to make sure that we had a clear path of escape. But if you recall, those people also did not know how to load things into the microfilm reader. So. Well, we're experts and we should have. I just Actually, put it on the wrong right, because you have to make sure it's supposed to just roll a different way and. It it only messed, but it only messed up at the end when we were trying to rewind it. So it was it was disturbing. Um, now I should admit that I I've used microphone readers way less than Sam. Um, I think I, I last used one <laughs> so during. Sam the, should have known better. No, no, I'm I'm saying I was absolutely no use at all. I last used a microphone reader during the Clinton administration. <laughs> I touched something and it literally fell off the machine onto the floor and the wheel started to unroll. To move and I yes, traded in I, seats. I just we traded seats and and <laughs> I would just assist (laughs) also fun news we are going to be appearing at the 2022 strange realities conference in mid-october down in nashville tennessee Um, i was there last year it was a great conference and me and sam are going to be um are going to be presenting on some stuff we haven't quite finalized the topic yet so we don't want to we don't want to sort of share anything yet but if you click the link in the show notes it'll take you to uh, where you can buy a ticket you can attend in person you can attend online it's uh, they've really leaned into the hybrid presentation mm-hmm. or hybrid conference format that's become um that's become so current uh in the last few years and it's a great conference huge number of very interesting speakers if you like our topics you will like the other speakers as well lots of good stuff yeah, I'm super excited. This will be my first time presenting at a paranormal conference, so I'm excited about that. It's fun. <laughs> I, I am too. I think it's. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be great. Our first time taking the show on the road. Yes, unless, unless someone books us over the uh, summer. Well, I was going to say mean, if anyone, something could pop up between now and then, but right now. <laughs> What we're saying is, first. if you would like to book us to speak at your yeah. event or venue, get in touch. All right enough advertisement are you are you ready to solve the mystery i am let's get back to the show so now we're going to head down to illinois to the town of carthage where something strange happened a man by the name of john elder showed up in town without any baggage and rented a room in a boarding house run by mrs hughes At dinner, the man said he was fasting and did not eat. The next morning, he also turned down breakfast, paid his bill, and left. A few moments later, Mrs. Hughes heard a noise in the shed and, afraid to look in on it herself, asked her mailman to do so when he showed up. He found John Elder on the floor bleeding from his neck and a knife in his hand. 
He died shortly after being found. The sheriff found two letters, one addressed to Mrs. Carmichael and the other to the Port Huron sheriff. The letter was dated January 9th, 1909, and began by stating that the letter was being written in connection with the Columbus Creek tragedy. He said, I am guilty only because I am a coward. The man, Amos Gideon Browning, has such a hypnotic influence over me that I felt something had to be done. He began by outlining the strange way that Browning was able to compel me to yield to his will, he wrote. Elder explained a time when Browning asked him for a ride and Elder was unable to refuse him, he claimed. Browning asked him to drive him to Port Huron and Elder resented him, but did so. The pair apparently had lunch and Browning paid. He asked Elder to go buy a small hatchet for his boy to play for, he said. Elder described, I began to tell him to go and do his own buying. He set his eyes upon me with the queerest sort of look, something like the look of a snake's eye. And the next paragraph is really eerie. All the while, I felt his influence tighten on my mind. So I went, intending to go into the store and out the back way to get the horse and rush off for home. When I returned to close the door, he stood looking upon me through the window, and I just bought the hatchet and came out again, but by that time he had disappeared. I went into the barn, got my rig, and started for home, when as I made the turn into Military Street, he was at the corner to get in. It sounds as though the next part of the story either occurs later or at another time. But interestingly, Elder describes that when with Browning, he felt as small as a bantam chicken. Elder claimed that Browning began talking to him and making arrangements for a wedding he wanted. Browning told him he would go to Port Huron and get the license and meet him near the church later. Later, when he met Browning, Browning was alone and claimed the others would come, so they headed to the church. There was some back and forth about lighting a lamp, and it's clear that it's now dark. And the next part needs to be read in full. He took a big hearty laugh and said, (laughs) there ain't no use looking, for there ain't going to be no wedding. He was sitting where a gleam of light shone on his face and his eyes were so brilliant that I was thrilled through and through. Queerest sort of feeling. I asked him why then he had made the present arrangement when he said, Well, Elder, I just wanted to have a little fun. You consider yourself an educated man and look down on a poor ignorant fellow like me and I just thought I would show you. I knowed if I could handle you, I could handle any other man and make a big thing out of it. Now if I say raise your hand, up she goes. See, that's no dream. And I felt my hand raising without any effort whatsoever on my part. And then he said, if I let you down your hand, down it goes. And I felt it going down in a singular manner. By this time, I was so alarmed that I was in a cold sweat. I then leaned over to see if anyone might be on the road when he began to laugh again and I saw that he was holding a weapon up his sleeve. Instantly, I made a grab for it and got the hatchet from him and asked what he meant to do with that. And he said, I'll show you. And from his pocket overcoat, he drew out a knife with each hand. So a fight ensues and is detailed exactly what happened in this letter. Elder hits Browning with the hatchet and eventually Elder kills Browning. Elder cut up Browning into pieces and threw him in the fire. But when he noticed that his own clothing was bloodier than Browning's, he traded some garments. The final paragraph of the letter reads, I am tired of trying to hide. Though I have succeeded in eluding detectives so far, if you get this and I am yet alive, come and get me. I shall be not far from Carthage, Illinois. And the letter was signed, Reverend W.J. Carmichael. 
The letters are published in the Chicago Tribune on January 12th, 1909. So I just want to get this straight in my head, what we just experienced. (laughs) Carmichael, calling himself elder, ends up in Carthage, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And in this letter, he explains that he was under some sort of hypnotic thrall mm-hmm. by Browning. So they're in this church, which they've gotten to by some sort of elaborate story about a wedding. Yeah, And then Browning says, basically, if I can take you, I can take any man, pulls out a hatchet, mm-hmm. and they go to town. Yeah, it almost sounds like Browning realized, like, like if you believe this letter... Browning was like testing out his abilities to control other people yeah. on Carmichael. And he's like, yeah, you, you know, you're the reverend. You're a smart guy. So I figured I'd start off with you. And if I can make you do what I want, if I can bend you to my will, I can get anybody. <laughs> so the next day, January 13th, the Champaign County News ran a long story about the finding of Carmichael's body. The day prior, Sheriff Wagoncell arrived in Carthage to take the body to Detroit by the request of Carmichael's son. In a letter addressed to his wife, Carmichael wrote, I wish I had told you or some other friend the influence this man was gaining over me. I was alone and a coward. He robbed me of my judgment. I thought I could get away and hide. The article also states that Carmichael had told Mrs. Hughes that he was in town to start a factory and hadn't found what he was looking for in town. When he left, he said, I think I'll find a better site there in Bowen, Illinois. I'll take the nine o'clock train. And that's when he left and cut his own throat. The article also reports on the misery of Carmichael's wife, as well as Browning's mother. The confession confirmed the identification of Browning's body. Prosecutor Brown said he did not believe Carmichael's claim and that he was using the suicide to paint himself as a victim. I mean, that would be a smart way to spin something. I mean, like, yeah. Although it doesn't read like a suicide note. He says, if you get this and I'm alive, come get me. So there was a January 12th article from the Herald Review of Decatur, Illinois, and it adds a bit more insight to some of the angles that were being examined. Concerning Browning, he is described twice as being simple-minded and apparently a bad husband. He had married his wife, Sarah, in West Bloomfield, New York in 1895, and he drank excessively, was abusive, and eventually the pair separated, which we had mentioned earlier, though this article doesn't mention her running off with an Italian. It's a classy <laughs> paper there <laughs> but um she said uh his wife said that she had never heard of reverend carmichael carmichael's wife in this article um shared some interesting bits of information first mrs carmichael recalled that about two weeks before the murder her husband's mental state had begun to falter which we had heard in other um articles The article reported that Mrs. Carmichael never knew of her husband studying mesmerism or hypnotism, though. She also had no idea why he headed to Carthage. She knew of nobody there that he would have known or anybody he would be trying to find. Prosecutor Brown also claimed that Browning was too simple-minded to know anything of mesmerism or hypnotism, and they found no evidence in his possessions to counter that assessment. So he didn't have any books or study materials or, or anything like that on the topic. Brown said, I shall always believe there was a deep motive behind the crime. Well, duh. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> no, he, 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 
dismembered him just on yeah. a whim. The search for a reason behind all of this would continue for several days before the whole story just sort of vanishes off the pages of the newspapers. Headlines in the January 13th Detroit Free Press declared, Wounds on body of Carmichael reveal him morphine fiend. Detectives found a hypodermic syringe on the body and, as a subheadline proclaimed, discovery declared to solve many problems. <laughs> so he was a junkie. So here's my question. And I, I – okay, so does morphine drive people into a rage where they murder people and dismember the body? I mean, I'm not inclined to think so, no. but I also – I mean, yeah. There's sort of a – early 20th century thing that anybody who's seen the movie reefer madness will recognize of just sort of assuming and declaring and asserting that all drugs would just eventually drive you to a state of criminal insanity. Dr. Grimes, the St. Clair County physician said that all the evidence pointed to morphine and this passage is just the most 1909 thing ever. It would be natural to think that a man in his condition must have been a user of cocaine but cocaine is rarely used with a syringe. Moreover, it is seldom indeed that you'll find a professional man a user of cocaine. Cocaine is the food of the lower and more depraved <laughs> classes. How things change by the time you get to the 1980s. Right. Prosecutor Brown said that he was convinced a member of the Carmichael family was holding back information and that if the minister was a dope fiend, then that bears out my contention. Brown didn't think that Carmichael could be an addict without somebody in the family knowing about it. One member of the family who did have something to add was John F. Carmichael, the reverend's nephew. John claimed that he recalled a conversation with Carmichael in which the minister explained that he had suffered an accident as a young man. He and some other boys were sledding, and there was a crash injuring Carmichael's face and head. The nephew said Carmichael told him, This thing will shuffle me off sometime. In the paper the next day, Carmichael's brother expressed remorse that he had caused the sledding accident that had precipitated the injury, and he suspected the insanity that led to the entire affair. So connecting to this theory, doctors in Detroit examined Carmichael's brain and concluded that some kind of underlying condition described as acute mania and dementia had taken a violent form causing his actions. The blood vessels of the brain are greatly congested. There is an adhesion of the coverings of the brain to the cranium and an anemia of the right side of the brain is evident. The examination also shows granulations of the superior posterior surface of the cerebrum. The paper also reported that relatives were denying that insanity ran in the family despite the earlier story about the sister in the West Virginia institution. The doctors also concluded there was no evidence of needle marks on the body. What were thought to be were only superficial injuries to the skin caused after death. But also what he was found when he was found, he was still alive and he was just stabbed. So what happened to him after death? I, the only thing I can think I was wondering that, too. And the only thing I can think is that just from moving the body, maybe. But if you did it really poorly. Well, I guess it's 19. I don't know. What I was going to say it's 1909. <laughs> And you know they might have they might have moved the body quickly, trying to save him or trying yeah, to oh, to perform true. some that's some. Um, well, then he was still alive. So right, I was going to say CPR, but that, that wasn't. You don't do that. For, <laughs> you're bleeding out. Let me give you CPR. Out. Here, let me pump your heart faster. <laughs> um, oh wait, no, that's, that's the exact <laughs> wrong thing to do. I love the fact that we are at this point in time when there's enough 
scientific and medical knowledge mm-hmm. to at least know that there might be structural issues in the brain mm-hmm. that caused some sort of issues. If you're familiar with the story of Phineas Gage, who back in the 1840s or 50s got a metal bar shoved from like the hollow of his cheekbone up through the top of his skull um, and survived, (laughs) shockingly, what happened was it completely changed his personality. He became a deeply unpleasant, awful person and and Mm -hmm. wasn't himself anymore. So go 50 years in the future, we're getting to the point where doctors and scientists you know, understand mm-hmm. the brain a little better than they did. But and but it's this is also too the time of like phenology. Yeah. And so I mean, clearly they're not looking at like lumps on the skull here. They're looking at, you know, the inside brain structure. But it like the way they're writing about it though, that's what it reminded me a bit of for some reason. We get that this is important somehow, yeah. but we just don't quite know yes. how yet. Yes. It's like it's something in his in his head meat. We we know that much for sure. And the way that they're piecing all of the pieces together too, like well, we know his sister's in an institution. Then he wrote these weird novels and he was dismissed from this other church for indecent behaviors or whatever it was. Um, you know, they're they're building up his history to like show. And we didn't put it in here anywhere. But Aaron and I were talking and in all of these articles, his wife doesn't seem too tore up about this. No, she she doesn't. There's like one late one where she's upset. But more like the shame and the embarrassment of my husband being a suicide. Yeah. One of those Chicago articles that I had, or well, I should say Illinois articles. I don't remember if it was the Chicago one or not. But it said, you know, something like she expressed a lot of um, sorrow for, you know, her children and what they would have to go through. But for herself, she was like, well, it's kind of a shame that it had to come to this, but eh, <laughs> at least <Yeah>. it's over. <laughs> it's almost that he he was in a weird mood, you know, but not, yeah. not like. Like, there's no possible way it could be him. You know, not right. much of yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah. I thought that that was really interesting. So, Sam, you had a theory <laughs> about this that you I shared did. with me. And <laughs> I I laughed a little bit. And then the more I thought about it and the more I, I read, especially the letter, it began to make a lot of sense to me. And I don't know if you're just really persuasive or if... <laughs> If Maybe I, I'm exhibiting hypnotist talents over you. Um. <laughs> My arm is raising right now. You, you can't see. Yeah. So I almost wonder if the two were involved in some kind of a relationship and Carmichael was starting to feel really weird about it or, you know, notice people were noticing or, you know, internally was struggling with what he was engaging in and kind of almost like he had to interpret it as well he's forcing me to do those things because there are a few different places where the turns of phrase are just really odd but him showing up at the post office and like there's that letter could he have been blackmailing browning blackmailing carmichael like oh well you know if you don't start paying me like i'm gonna tell everybody what's been going on and there was even that reference that the people in town you know had started noticing that they were kind of weirdly hanging out and stuff (laughs) and one of the one of the phrases that struck me was um he was sitting there with a gleam of light shown on his face and his eyes were so brilliant that i was thrilled through and through yes that yeah. one sort of yeah sort of and and describing what is sort of being in the hold of some sort of lust or something yeah. as, as being you know mentally 
sort mm-hmm. of enchained. I think it's it's just as likely as anything else. Well, and again, taking into account that he, you know, had some kind of illicit behaviors at his Nebraska church. Right. It's like, well, what was that? <laughs> you know, because yeah. the newspaper never explained it. You know, I guess it's something that we could, you know, I could dive into a little bit further. I didn't have time to before we recorded. I'm trying to check for like Nebraska papers from earlier and just see. But if it's a church business that nobody wanted to talk about, that's not going to be in the newspaper. No. They would just, they would quietly move him to another church and and that would be that. That all adds together. And when you throw in the wife sort of being like, yeah, oh. and, and the job at the church, just standing around, smoking a cigar. Wearing a suit. Wearing, wearing Didn't a suit. he say, wear, I have to wear a nice we're, suit and smoke a cigar. Wearing a nice suit, which sounds to me like my job is to go to the church and shake down the minister and, and basically <laughs> right. extort money yeah. from you know, knowledge of our illicit, uh, yeah. illicit affair. I don't know. Um, but currently that's, um, my favorite of yeah. the theories. So what I was thinking when mm-hmm. working on this was that this seems perfect for a gritty, shockingly violent Netflix show. It does. I, I mean, doesn't, it, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, that's not really a question. This is a request. Somebody out there make <laughs> Please me... make this into yes, a thing. It would be awesome. And I was also kind of thinking that this needs a novel. At least Mm. if there isn't, I haven't found anything that looks like local writer pens book about local. No, it's really, I think it's bizarre for as big of a case as this was and how, I mean, you've got the Canadian officials, Ohio, Illinois, you know, like all these people. I can't believe we don't know about it. Yeah. So if you were going to cast this, who would you have portraying Browning and Carmichael? So that's a good question. <laughs> and I was uh, I was thinking about this because they're both they're both like in their fifties, right? So they're they're yeah, older they're yeah. older guys. I want Daniel Day Lewis in this. Oh, somehow I want I want him to be the watch anything Daniel Day Lewis is on. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's it'd be perfect because he's Daniel Day Lewis, but also. Uh-huh. I can see him being Browning. I, I can see him having that sort of magnetism oh. and that sort of oddness and sort of odd sinister. Did you watch There Will Be Blood? Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, that was one of your pandemic movie Oh, that's right. I told you to watch that. Yeah, you told me to watch <laughs> so it. so good. I, yeah, it, it, it is. <gasps> so good. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And and yeah. I, I, I can see him being able to pull off that, uh, that sort of sinister oddness mm. without it being cheesy. So I actually, for Browning's role, and so this is probably a little young, but it's it's fictionalized, so whatever. Um, I was thinking of Hamish, Hamish Linklater. He's the guy who played Father Paul at Midnight Mass. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah, because he played that sort of manipulative, manipulative, squirrely kind of like also the sort of a charismatic, charismatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was going to say sort of Svenjali like, you know, (laughs) hold over uh, over the the, the congregation. So I I, I I think, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I haven't thought of who should play. Like, I was really trying to think of that today and I don't have a good idea for who should play Carmichael, though. I I don't either. Ooh, Um, Woody Harrelson. No, change my mind. I just blurted that out because it popped into my head, but he he seems more bland, you know. Yes, it, it's yes, that exactly. Bill Pullman. Oh, I can, I can, yeah. He's the guy in the center, right? Yeah. Okay, I always, I always have to think through Bill Pullman, Bill Paxton. Bill. <laughs> I was gonna <laughs> I say not Bill, pa- not Bill Paxton. Not Bill Paxton. 
Yes, he was the the president in Independence uh, Day. Independence Day. Yeah. No, that would be perfect. Perfect. Yeah, we have the, cast this. These two guys just yep. just sort of eyeing each other up in town and I think mm. as the audience you shouldn't know what the relationship that that the motive yep. should yeah, it should be it should be creepy. It should be told in flashback somehow. Mm. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking some kind of interesting framing device. And you need to ca- cast a good cop character yeah. for Sheriff Wagonsall, yes. too. That character needs to be brought out in order yes. to make this worth it. Or not and, worth it, but and make a, it work. A, and Prosecutor Brown has to be a Weasley bureaucratic backstabbing <laughs> paper pusher who is saying things to the press that the sheriff would really prefer he not say. Because Brown always seemed to make these pronouncements like, well, I'm pretty sure if he was a junkie, that's what the family was hiding. And it's like, oh, shut up. Um, so, yeah. I, I will always believe there was a deep motive behind this. Yeah. Mm. As, as a way to sort of, sort of make it sound like an important case that he utterly failed yeah. to prosecute anybody for. <laughs> so one thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about before we wrap up connected to this has to do with this idea. I'm... I hear it a lot as a public historian, someone dealing with history and the public at the same time. But people say things like, oh, there's just so much more crime these days, or people are so much more messed up these days, (laughs) or, you know, all of these kinds of things. And I think that this case is proves perfectly that humans were always totally messed up. (laughs) And my go to answer for this is that. The way that the current news cycle, the 24-hour news cycle and the media are able to constantly talk every single case to death and shove it in your face and show news clips and put it all over your, your social medias, it makes things seem a whole lot worse than they were 50 or 100 years ago, but they are not. Especially with the, the superficial way that that mm-hmm. things are are treated because the the coverage in the free press of this case every day it was in the paper it was about half of the entire front page mm-hmm. and about half to two-thirds of the second page it was it was long they were complex stories they were bringing in all sorts of theories and ideas it was yeah comprehensive. And we even saw that looking at the newspapers, you know, just a couple weekends ago for the Dungeon Swamp thing. So right, even in yeah. the little town of White Cloud, their newspaper had these huge like whole front page or a good chunk of front page stories um with outlandish headlines and interviewing all of these people and all kinds of things. And I mean, and you get that in some newspapers today. If you if you pick up the Washington Post, sure. you, you will get some. But how many people pick up the Washington Post? You know, it, it, it's yeah. It, we don't. That's not where most people get get their news. They get it. They get it from not even reading. Not they, they get it from the headlines of links on social media without clicking on it and reading it. Or or the little clips on the news. So you see the same gruesome clip or. Throughout a day, you'll see 10 different interviews uh, with people talking about it. And so when you're seeing something in video form, I think it, you know, hits much more real than reading about a story, you know, in the newspaper. Things have always been awful. When I was, Mm -hmm. um, one last thing, when I was a kid, my first sort of exposures to history was a book called The Good Old Days. They were terrible. And (laughs) it was basically not a lot of text, but a lot of newspaper drawings and images from the Bettman archive. 
Um, and it went through every bit of corruption and crime and um, bad working conditions and industrial accidents and adulterated food, this sort of sort of horrible, horrible time. And um, we have this, this a lot of people have this this sort of bright, shiny image of the past that uh, or or comparatively, it, it's they don't know anything about it, but it can't have been as bad as things are now because look how bad things are now. And that's the thing. I think that people just don't know enough about the past in right. order to like make these educated comparisons. Public yeah. memory is an interesting thing. <laughs> it is. We're not going to get into that extensively. No. At some point, I'm sure we will. Probably. Yeah. So the the last thing I think we wanted to briefly mention um, – deals with these ideas of mesmerism and hypnotism because that was brought up and we didn't really give an explanation during the story because we didn't want to detract from the story because it's this episode was a nice one we kept saying like it's very straightforward um and there were some bits you know when you throw that letter in the middle that that got a little you know off the tracks but it had a definite end <laughs> or beginning and a definite right. end. Um, and we didn't want to, you know, sort of stray too far from that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Aaron, did you have? The only thing that I'm not an expert on, on mesmerism or hypnotism, no. but there's been quite a bit of scholarship about mm. it. And it's, it's generally sort of, it's sort of big moment was early, like first half of the 19th century as being sort of an offshoot of romanticism and and the sort of animal magnetism and then sort of becomes a stage show sideshow kind of scam thing but it was always sort of in this this middle ground between paranormalish spiritualist mm-hmm. mind control mm-hmm. things but being approached as a science of mesmerism mm-hmm. so it's it's a very interesting thing and i, I what i think is would be interesting to look at. And this is something that, you know, our, our episodes are in a lot of ways jumping off points for mm-hmm. things that we could go down so many different paths. But was there something in a novel or a play or some kind of pop cultural thing about this kind of animal magnetism, mesmerism, control over a person? Is there, is there something that might have inspired inspired or, or guided Carmichael's thinking into this is this is what's happening to me. It's it's this sort of thing. How widespread was concern that this is something that might happen to people? Uh, I I don't know. Um, if anybody out there does, <laughs> let us know. But I, I just think it was, it was it was fascinating that 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 was sort of where he went as an explanation. Well, and the thing I thought was interesting is that in his letters, he doesn't actually use those words. No himself but in the newspaper they just throw it off as an aside it's like oh mrs carmichael says that her husband didn't know anything about mesmerism or hypnotism or oh we looked into browning's things and he didn't have anything about these things so like they're using the words as though it would have been very common knowledge at that time i guess in my mind as someone who doesn't know loads about this it would seem more of a specialized kind of a thing or something that would be talked about in certain circles but not necessarily small thumb town murder <laughs> right right which is why i want to dig into yeah. sort of the yeah i don't know we'll put that on the list of things to update people about maybe we'll have an episode that is just updates updates research research updates updates that uh, somehow we have found time to do in addition to doing the actual show yeah (laughs) we'll see about that we have loads of time on all kinds of spare time on our hands yeah (laughs) 
All right. Well, is there anything else? Nope. I think that covers it. I think so, too. Thanks for listening. The Rattle Run Murder was written and produced by Samantha Engel and Aaron Gullius. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore. <laughs>